Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. How's everybody doing out there? Great to have you with us on Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Like to thank the Believe Network for believing in this show. We'd like to thank our producer engineer today, Austin Elmore, for all of his outstanding work, and uh, it's great to be back with you. Um, Our guest this week, you know, there's always people you meet in your life that uh, they, they just stand out. And I'm not talking about your wife or your kids or, you know, maybe some of your really, really, really close friends. I'm just talking about a person you meet. It might only be one time. And that's hard to make an impression, this kind of impression I'm about to talk about, meeting somebody one time. But I've had the opportunity, and I call it a blessing, to be around our guest, Anthony Munoz. This guy... Um, I don't know if it's his faith. I don't know if it's his background, which you're going to hear a lot about, which might surprise you, growing up in Ontario, California. Uh, I don't know whether it's the injuries he had to go through. He'll talk about those things. Uh, A combination of all the above. Having a dad who was in and out of prison that he never even knew. Mom working two jobs. Five kids in the house. Um, You know, the... Anthony Munoz is a special, special man. And, and, and I think you're going to enjoy this. We're back with Anthony Munoz, and you're dialed in with Tom Brenneman. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Michael Anthony Munoz was born in Ontario, California in August of 1958, just celebrated a birthday, and and like a lot of you, uh, remembering and living here in Cincinnati when he was drafted by the Bengals, he had the hair going, he he had it all going, and um, he comes out of USC, he played football, he played baseball, believe it or not, we'll get to that in a second, and... um, at USC, he won all four of his bowl games, including three Rose Bowls. Lots to talk about with one of our all-time favorite people, Anthony Munoz, kind enough to join us. How are you, big fella? You look great, tan, fit, lean, and mean. Tom Brennerman, great seeing you, buddy. Uh, I feel good. You know, for, I just had a birthday, and I'm just thankful to get up in the morning and move around. You know? How's your <laughs> body feel, feel Anthony? Very... You know, you and I work together, and, and you've taken great care of yourself. Uh, you lost a lot of that weight you carried around when you were playing in the NFL. How does your body feel now? Because you hear all the stories about guys that, that aren't doing so well. How about you? You know, Tom, I'm very thankful, and I think you bring up a, a great key. Uh, you know, I've been retired uh, 30 years now, um, and I still work out every day. 
I think it's a matter of continuing to move. And I'm not a fanatic with what I eat, but I watch what I eat. And then just, uh, you know, lifestyle. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where as a lineman, I was always pretty flexible. So I always try to fly, uh, stretch every day. I think that's a key. But, you know, you can hear me coming down the hall sometimes and sometimes you can't. So the, it just <laughs> depends, uh, you know, what's what's moving uh, in the right direction when I wake up. But I would say I'm very thankful. Uh, really, the only thing in the 30 years that I've had go wrong is my right shoulder. Uh, I've had that reattached a couple times, a couple times being a little crazy with things. But uh, that was playing days. I had it reattached once, twice when I was playing. Uh, but for the most part, Tom, um, you know, I, I'm thankful. Didi and I talk about it that I can get, you know, I usually go hour, hour and a half in the morning and I can play 18 holes of golf. And at nighttime, I'm not really sore. I feel really good. Uh, you know, tired, of course, but uh, feel pretty good. So, you know, as long as I can keep doing that and feel good, I'm going to keep doing it. But I'm thankful for all the years I did what I did that I feel uh, as good as I do. It's got to be painful for you, Anthony, though, to, to see and talk to and watch, whether it be up close or from afar, um, some of the players that, that aren't as blessed uh, w with good health, whether that's physically, whether that's mentally, I mean, some of these stories are just devastating uh, of guys that did what you did for a long, long time. You know, they are, and, and I hate to see it, and it's going to happen, and it happens. And, man, I tell you what, it it, uh, it really breaks my heart. You know, guys that you, you, play, you played with, you watched play before you got in the league, and you watched after you left the league. Uh, you know, I can just start out down the line. I mean, a guy that we played the same amount of time, Came in in 80, finished 13 years. He was the right tackle for the Steelers. I was the left tackle for the Bengals. And he just passed last year of Lou Gehrig's disease, you know, my age, uh, Tun Chilkin, yeah. you know. And then you have um, Steve McMichael up in Chicago who's going through this. Ricky Dixon, who was quite a few years younger than me that I played with in Cincinnati, passed away. So you see a lot of, you see the dementia, the, L, you know, the Alzheimer's. And then, of course, the physical stuff. Uh, that's, that's pretty much a given with most guys that we're going to go through the, you know, the joint replacements and the joint, you know, arthritis. But the thing that really, really just besides the physical part is the mental part. When you see guys that are still pretty much there physically, but all of a sudden mentally they're not there. And that's really what uh, makes me sad. I want to go back to when you were growing up in Ontario, California. You clearly had um, a, a family that um, – that steered Anthony Munoz and your siblings in the right direction. What what was what was life like in the Munoz house when you were a kid growing up? <laughs> well, it was a little bit of survival mode, a little bit of uh, you know chaos. My mom raised five by herself. Uh, I had two older brothers and I had two younger sisters. I was right in the middle. I lost a brother that was two years older than me last year, uh, so I still have my oldest brother who's eight years older than me. I lost a sister that was just below me by a little over a year, two years ago. And then I still have my youngest sister who is five years younger. So the youngest, the oldest, and the middle still. We lost mom six years ago. But it was it was one of those things, Tom, we didn't have a whole lot. Um, we didn't have, never had a car, uh, never had a lot of the material things. She worked two, three jobs to provide for us. But we knew there was support and there was love. Uh, for me, athletics was very important at a young age. But we also knew that mom was a boss. So during the school year, if I wanted to go out and play baseball, which we did in Southern California basically year-round, get my homework done. 
during the summer. If I wanted to show up at the park, seven, eight in the morning, throw out the bases and play baseball, we had to get our chores done. And I wasn't just like taking the trash out, Tom. It was Mom taught us how to cook, how to wash clothes in the washing machine, how to hang them up, how to iron, how to sew, how to clean house. So five kids, we had to do all that for each other because she was gone six in the morning working every single day. Um, so she taught us work ethic, uh, responsibility, and there was a lot of support, not only from mom, but uh, uncles, coaches, teachers. So, you know, and all families aren't exempt from, you know, the kids going in you know, wrong direction at times. And I'm just thankful that uh, for me, I had those examples that I didn't really go off the rails crazy. You know, mm -hmm. of course, uh, you know, I, I just got a, a job and I interviewed and they did a background check. And I said, if you go after my freshman year in college, I'm okay. Don't, don't background <laughs> check. But, uh, so that's how it was growing up. You know, I knew that hopefully athletics was going to get me out of that environment, allow me to provide for my family, got to high school and football, basketball and baseball. So when you talk about the Munoz household, very supportive in everything we did, even though we didn't have a car, mom was at all our events, all our baseball games, all our, you know, all our events. She was just, she found a way to be there. That, that is just amazing when you think about the way your kids have grown up, my kids have grown up, the way so many kids are growing up um, today. And, and we're going to circle back to that a little bit later on uh, as it pertains to your foundation that you started in 2002. Um, when, when you are in high school, obviously you're big. You're strong. You're unbelievably <laughs> athletic. Um, but your first love with, was baseball, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, more so yeah. than football. Was a big part of your decision to go to USC besides them being a power and they're nearby and all that kind of thing. But, but having the ability to play both when you went there? That was part of the decision that came into my decision. You mentioned baseball. I started playing baseball when I was like six, seven years old. I wanted my name on my glove like Brooks Robinson because I was a third <laughs> baseman. Uh, I, I idolized Juan Marichal as a big kid. Big kid, I had the high leg kick as a pitcher. So those are the two guys that I wanted to be like. So my dream was to be a major league baseball player. And you know, so then fast forward to high school, started three years on the varsity, three-time All-State, uh, played two years of varsity football, only two years of All-State. But still in high school, you know, even though I continued to grow, you know, 6'4 my sophomore year, 6'5 my junior year, 6'6, 290, 300 my senior year, I still, baseball was still my first love and still I was being very successful. So when I started to get recruited, I always wanted to go to USC. I just wanted to go there. But when they said, you can play baseball, forget it. I always used that as a recruiting pitch, but I knew USC meant it because they had a track record of letting guys do that. And it was signed, sealed, and delivered once they said that. And you had a chance to actually pitch for a team that won a national championship at USC. <laughs> I'm talking about baseball now, not football. Yeah. I did. In fact, my freshman year, I didn't get a chance to play baseball because I was rehabbing a knee. So my sophomore year in school was actually my freshman year of baseball. And we were loaded, Tom. I mean, our team was unbelievable. I played a few games on the JV, DH a little bit. Then my arm got into shape. And he put me in the bullpen on the varsity. So I was – I. Most of the year, I was on the varsity team. Uh, we went to Omaha. We, I mean, we, we just didn't win the World Series. I mean, it was like Michigan, 8-0 in the top of the first, so we pitched the whole pitching staff. You know, we beat Arizona State twice with uh, Hubie Brooks and Rob Horner. 
Uh, I mean, we beat some pretty good teams. Just about everybody on our team got drafted. But, yeah, I was one and out. One year I got to play baseball. I got myself a, a national championship ring. I think I pitched 11 innings that year. I did get one win, so I'm undefeated as a college pitcher. Nothing wrong with that. So, Tim, it was kind of mop-up at the end, you know. We were, we were in Texas for Easter, and we were going into Austin to play the University of Texas. And I think it was Eastern uh, Michigan was there, and we played. We had scheduled one game, and our starting pitcher took a line drive in the first inning. So coach put me in, and I pitched enough to get the win that, that game. But uh, almost – got a chance to pitch in the World Series. So I mentioned the Michigan game. We were up eight zip in the top of the first inning. So what he did, he didn't start the starter, which makes sense. But everybody on the staff pitched a half an inning. And there was myself and another freshman pitcher. We warmed up and we ran out of innings. We thought we were going to get at least a half an inning. But uh, the fact that I got to warm up in the World Series and just be there and win was unbelievable. On the football side, I mean, you are it from the get-go there. Your junior year, you have this great season. Now comes your senior year at USC, and, and, and you get hurt in the season opener. You injure your knee. And, and I want to read a quote from Coach John Robinson, because what you did is you tore ligaments in your knee. You missed the rest of the regular season. You had the choice at the end of the year to come back and play in the Rose Bowl, which you did, and you beat undefeated Ohio State, or you could have taken a medical red shirt. You decided to come back and play in that game. Wiped out your red shirt. John Robinson says, that's a perfect game. It's one of the greatest things I have ever seen happen or will ever see happen. Him coming back to play in that game. Um, when you got injured in the season opener and everybody knew that you were going to be a big high round pick in the NFL, um, when you get injured that first game and you know it's going to be a long time before you're able to get out there again, can you remember what you were thinking about in terms of your future as a football player? So I do. It was a long time ago. I'll never forget the day after surgery, Cedar-Sinai Hospital. That's back when they kept me in the hospital two, three days. I did a live hookup interview. And I'm sure most people know this name. Brian Gumbel was an NBC sportscaster in L.A. And he live, he hooked up live. I'm in my bed at Cedar Side Night. He's doing an interview. And the last thing he says, he goes, Anthony, this was my third knee operation. Get it? A freshman, junior, late junior year, and then senior years. Brian says, Anthony, when is enough enough? This is your third knee operation. When is it time to say, okay, let's let's move on? And I said, Brian, I still have the passion and the desire to come back for one more chance. Tom, that one more chance was not the NFL draft, was not an NFL camp, was to play January 1st. We just come off a national chip my junior year in football also. Heisman Trophy winner Charles White. We were ranked number one when I got hurt in Lubbock, Texas, second time we had the football first game. I knew we would win the Pac-10 again and go to a Rose Bowl. So that one chance I talked about in that interview was getting rehabbing and playing in a Rose Bowl. We had played in two with the guys that I entered school with. We were all getting ready to finish school. That's why I didn't want to come back for a red shirt. I had enough school, didn't want to go to grad school. I wanted to play in a Rose Bowl with Charles White, Brad Buddy, Paul McDonald, Ronnie Lott, Dennis Smith, Joey Brown, all, 
I hadn't played in a Rose Bowl with these guys. And that was that one shot I wanted. So as soon as I got out of the hospital, Didi and I had been married about two years. She thought I was a little crazy. I was jumping rope in my cast. I was lifting weights. I would go to class, go to rehab, lift weights, and then back to the apartment for homework. And, and she'll tell you now, she thought I was a little crazy. And maybe I, I, I had to be. <laughs> and uh, during the season, I stayed with the team. Back then, you know, I would wait, and guys, you know, they get their tape job, and then right before the game, oh, it's a little loose. I need to get spatted. I don't know if it's because your tape job's loose or it looks cool to get spatted. <laughs> but I, I became like the official spatter for my guys. And I knew if I spatted them at SC, you couldn't have it white. You had to spray paint it black. So I carried my spray paint and the tape, but I stayed engaged. And I kept telling the guys, keep winning. I'm going to be with you January 1st. And they'd kind of look at me and say, okay, yeah, yeah, we, we get it. You know, I'm, they're probably thinking this guy is delusional. You know, he's had his third knee operation. But that was my whole focus was to get ready to rehab. I'd been through two rehabilitations, so I knew what it took. And we won the Pac-10. And I had to convince John Robinson to let me start practicing about a half an hour in his office. He didn't want to. And I understood the dilemma he was in. I mean, here's a guy that's had his third knee operation. I mean, is he coming back to finally after about a half an hour? He said, Anthony, go if you go to the doctor and he gives you an OK, I'll let you start practicing. Man, I flew to the doctor and the doc said there's no reason why you can't start practicing because I tested both legs. Two surgeries on my right, this was on my left. By this time, December of that year, after three months from surgery, my left leg was now stronger than my right leg, and mm. I was busting both of them. So I made every practice. Now, my conditioning during that whole time, I could get on a bicycle, and I felt like Lance Armstrong. I mean, I could bicycle <laughs> all day long. So getting out to practice and running 110s after practice was a little hard at maybe the first two or three practices. But my cardio was there. My legs got, I got my legs under me and then it just kicked in. And I got to play every single, I think I took two downs off during the game because I was almost hyperventilating. I was so excited. <laughs> but we happened to have a pretty good freshman lineman and Bruce Matthews who came in. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I played the whole game. And um, I tell you what, Tom, to, to be on that team and to beat Ohio State and having to go 80 plus yards to win the game on the ground was just, I mean, the game of my life. And, you know, to hear that quote from John Robinson, I can honestly say after looking back in about 30 of the 50 some games I played, that was probably the best game I played at USC after missing the entire season. Not thinking about draft or anything. Like I said, I was thinking about January 1st, the granddaddy of them all, <laughs> 82, 83 degrees, playing the number one team. And that, that was my thought. And, uh, and I got a chance to do that. Okay, so after that's over, um, now all of a sudden, I, I, I got to believe your attention swings uh, to the potential of the draft. Okay, and, and I think your junior and senior years combined, so you played a total, if I'm not mistaken, of 16, 15, 16 games, something in that neighborhood. So now teams are trying to decide, all right, what am I going to do? And, and for, for younger people out there, teams watching you, drafting you, scouting you, contacting you is so different than it is now. I, I mean, they poke and prod every part of your body, and, and probably in your case, to some extent, perhaps they did back then. Did you have any gut feeling? 
I guess, one about Cincinnati and two that you would be a top three pick in the draft. Did, did you even see that coming as a, as a possibility? Had no clue. Before my senior year, they were talking top five pick. Once I got hurt, all the experts said he'd be lucky to go as a free agent. Uh, maybe a late round pick, but probably a, a free agent. So my whole goal after that Rose Bowl was just to, and granted, I'm finishing up school, so I had class. I am going in the weight room, and I am just, I'm taking it to another level. I mean, you know, I know guys go to Arizona, to Florida now, but look at who got us where we, to where we were as seniors, our strength and conditioning coach at your college, at your university. So all of us stayed there, and we just busted it with our strength coach. And I said, I've got to be as strong and as in the best shape I possibly can. So just in case they want to work me out, that I'm ready. But my whole goal was just to get to a camp. And it really didn't consist of being drafted. I didn't know if I was going to be drafted. But hopefully somebody would say, hey, we want to take a, sh a shot. We want to sign you as a free agent, come to our camp. I just wanted a chance to try to compete, see if I could compete on that level. And as far as the Cincinnati Bengals, they had just hired Forrest Gregg. They had the third pick. Uh, and you're right. We had about six combines when I was coming out. Now they have the one in Indy. Mm -hmm. We had one like in Philly, New York, L.A., Dallas. And all the guys would leave the physical and be there like an hour after everybody left. The doctors would check, recheck, recheck, put me through stuff. Um, but the one thing that I – kind of gave me a little bit of hope was the only team besides the physical that flew me in and worked me out with the Cincinnati Bengals. They flew me in after the physical and their docs, again, just prodded and checked and strength training. And then later that, you know, after that, Forrest Gregg flew out to, to LA. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if you're an offensive lineman in college and you don't know who Forrest Gregg is, you're nuts. You know, yeah. uh, you know, I knew he was all pro guard tackle. I knew he was a Hall of Fame tackle. I knew that Vince Lombardi called him the finest player he had ever coached. And think about that, all the guys that Lombardi coached. And um, so he came out to work me out. So I got ready. I put my workout clothes on. We went on our practice field. And for about two hours, man, he put me. And Forrest was still in pretty good shape as a head coach in 19. He was probably maybe 40 years old, maybe not even that old, about 250. And he jogged every day. So, I mean, it was like he put me through just about every offensive line drill. And I just, I said, here's my chance. And the story that I share, that is no exaggeration, and we got to share it two years after they drafted me. We went to the Super Bowl during media week. The last drill he put me through, and you have to understand, at USC with Hudson Houck, our offensive line coach, who coached 30 years in the NFL, we were using our hands, man. We were punching. We were, I mean, that was kind of on the cutting edge. That's when it all started. And so Forrest says, I'm going to line up a defensive end, and I want you just to react. So he lines up. I'm in a left-handed stance. He's on the outside of me. He fakes outside. He goes inside, but then he goes to swat my outside shoulder. And when guys, defensive linemen, go to swat your outside shoulder, swat you, expose your, their chest. And our first reaction is to take both hands and just boom right in the chest and i did that just instinct and tom the first thing that hit the ground was the back of his head on the ground <laughs> and i'm thinking oh man i just and I, my heart just dropped 
I reached over to help him up, and I said, Coach, I am so sorry. And he looked at me in that southern draw, and he says, that's all right, son. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe that just helped me out tremendously. And, of course, a couple months later, with the third pick, they took me. So, uh, yeah, but I had no clue other than that workout that maybe that was a sign uh, so when draft day rolled around and we got that call right away, because the third pick of the draft, they're calling you right away. Right. And uh, and it happened, and I'm thinking, who is calling me? My relatives are calling me to see if I've been drafted. Got to get them <laughs> off the phone because I might get the call. Suddenly, the secretary says, Anthony Munoz. I said, yep. She goes, uh, Cincinnati Bengals, can you hold for Jim McNally? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I had met Jimmy in January. He had just been hired as a line coach. I had lunch with him and Paul uh, with Pete Brown. And he gets on the phone. He says, Anthony, you're our guy. We just taken you. And I'm like, I hang up the phone. I'm like, holy smokes. I look at Didi because we're in our one-bedroom apartment there at USC. <laughs> six foot six, 300 pounds. I'm weeping by then, you know. And, <laughs> and I, I kind of composed myself. I said, Didi, we're going to Cincinnati. And Didi looks at me and goes, where's Cincinnati? <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. Right. I said, I don't care, but we're going there as a third pick. <laughs> When you get on that plane and you fly to Cincinnati with Didi and, uh, you know, they have the press conference introduce you and all that kind of stuff. Had you met Paul Brown yet? And, and, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, if you're an offensive lineman growing up and uh, in, in the time when you did, if you didn't know who Forrest Gregg was and you probably shouldn't be playing football. Paul Brown was a little bit older. <laughs> Uh, and, and obviously all his accomplishments, Hall of Famer, uh, innovative, so on and so forth. What Had you met him? And then if not, what was it like to meet him? Well, I hadn't. You know, I met the, all the others. Uh, when I, I mean, when you meet him, and when I met him as a 21-year-old rookie, they just drafted, you're meeting history. You, I didn't know everything about his history, but I knew he was football history. I mean, he was the man. And then all of a sudden you meet him, you play for him, and you realize what the guy brought to the game of football. I mean, you just mention it, face mask, playbook, videotaping practices. You know, it's just and, – and, Tom, here's the one thing. I tell people, like I said about Forrest Gregg, if you're a football fan, you love history, you have to know what Paul Brown brought to the game. I say – I ask people, I said, how do the quarterback communicate with the coaches? And they said, well, they got these, you know, transmitters and they – I said, so think about this. I think it was in the late 1950s. Paul Brown tried to put a transmitter in his quarterback's helmet to communicate with them. I mean, that is crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. It, they couldn't get it. And I, I laughed and I said, what, he get too many radio stations while they were trying to <laughs> But he tried that in the late 50s. I mean, it's face masks and playbooks and... So when I met him, it, it was. It was just like meeting history. And then every year you're with him, it's like you learn more and more. And he, he shares more and more with you because he was very engaging. Uh, and, you know, questions that he asked you led to stories. And it's like, all right, history lesson. But, uh, yeah, so when I finally met him, it was like, wow, I get a chance to be around. And then you learn that he's there every single day. You know, I mean, installment, coming in after a game. On the, on the plane, on the plane. I mean, he's it, until he passed and got sick, he was there every single day, which is, I mean, amazing. Yeah, an amazing guy, no question about it. Um, your second, you, you you become a starter right away as a rookie. 
you got some good players on his team. Uh, a year later, you go to the Super Bowl. Um, look, everybody says going to a Super Bowl is their ultimate goal or a World Series in baseball or an NBA final, whatever it might be, right? But I always like to, to, to ask people, and, and I'm curious, you know, the moment they maybe come out to warm up for a Super Bowl, Maybe it's in your hotel room the night before a Super Bowl. Maybe it's when they introduce your name. And that Super Bowl you played in was in Detroit uh, that mm-hmm. year at the Silverdome. Is there a moment for you that says, you look around and you're like, and knowing you and a man of faith, you're going, Lord, I, I, I can't believe I'm here. This, I'm playing in the Super Bowl. Was there ever a moment where it hit you? Yeah, I mean – I guess the first one was in that cool game we played at Riverfront. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You know, like 59 below, you know, you're sitting there and going, man, this is crazy. Playing, But then you think about the winner goes to the Super Bowl. So it hits right after the last second, but it doesn't sink in. It hits, but it doesn't sink in. And then you have that whole week practicing at home and the media, you know, I mean, they, they come not like it is now, but you get a lot of the media all week. Uh, coming into Cincinnati, and then you go to the city. We went to Pontiac, Detroit, and then you – and I guess media day there. You're in the stadium, and they have you set all up in the stadium, and you you're, and you just kind of are looking around, and you're thinking, man, this isn't a, a, a preseason media gathering. This isn't a – this is a Super Bowl, a pre-Super Bowl media day. You're actually in a – you know, and, and I watched, you know, back when I was growing up, I watched the Super Bowls, and – of course, the year before I got drafted, the Steelers beat the Rams in Pasadena, so I watched that. So two years in the league, I'm thinking, we're going to the Super Bowl. And a little different than my days at SC because we go 6-10 and 10 my rookie year with the Bengals. And if you remember, prior to 80, they were 4-12 and 12 two years in a row, so they got a lot of number one picks. You know, Browner, Whitley, Edwards, Alexander, Thompson. I mean, there's a ton of number one picks because of how – Badly the team did. So my rookie year, we lose 10 games. I don't think I lost 10 games in four years of high school and college. You know? <laughs> uh, so that was like, but you could see the team getting better. We had out of those 10 losses, maybe half of them, we could have won if we would have held on late in the game. And then, so there was some encouragement there. But then, you know, going in that second year, you know, five and two, we go to New Orleans, five and two, and we're having a pretty good start. But then they just spank us. I mean, they beat us good. We're five and three. We get, I mean, we get shellacked and we get the heat from the press. But then that month of November, we go five and zero. Oh. And I'm telling, we don't go for, only go five and zero. Oh. We have teams put away by mid to early third quarter. Uh, and then we start thinking playoffs, but not Super Bowl. So it Super Bowl sinking in wasn't for a while. I mean, I'm like the week after the AFC, the week up in Detroit. That's when it starts to sink in and you're like, you look around. And then pregame, you run out. And that's when, because usually you're home, they're all your fans. You're on the road, nobody's rooting for you. But you run out and half the stadium's rooting for you and half the stadium's the opposing team fans. So, you know, there's a few things that all of a sudden you look around and say, wow. We're the only two teams playing. We're in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's, it's hard to comprehend, but then it starts sinking in. Over the next seven years after that Super Bowl loss to the 49ers, uh, you're a pro bowler every year. You end up in 11 of them. 
Every one of us has seen guys that have incredible success, and now success becomes more success and more success, not just in sports, in life, business, whatever it might be, right? And, and they start to, to lose an edge. I'll be the first guy in the world to admit, I, I started at times in baseball to sort of lose mine a little bit despite all the success. Um, did you ever find yourself in a moment where you started to – you had to catch yourself and like, man, I got – okay, I got to get back to that guy who was getting ready to play in that Rose Bowl game uh, after missing the entire year. I got to get back to that guy getting ready for the draft after playing in the Rose Bowl game. Did, did you ever have a crossroads, something like that, Anthony? You know what, Tom? I, I can honestly – I really didn't because my whole philosophy, even being the number three pick, when I first got here, I had to earn a job because I was young, high draft pick, and then you mentioned the Pro Bowls. And even though I was making the Pro Bowl, I'm getting closer to 30 years old. And in this league, closer you get to 30 years old, you're, you're an old guy. So my whole philosophy was, I worked this hard when I was young, I gotta work this much harder when I, I'm getting older. So I can honestly say that it wasn't until, I think before that last year, and I always told myself, when I felt like I lived up in Mason, early in my career, I told myself when I drive down 71 to go to practice and I feel like I'm going to work, that's when I, I believe it's time to retire. And that's when, and not one off season, not one regular season, even though we had some tough regular season, when I would hit Sycamore High School to run, man, at 23, 29, 30, I was probably in better cardio shape at 34 than I was in 24 um, in the weight room. Of course, you're not as strong. You lose some, but busting in the weight room. So I can really say that the excitement of learning and getting, hopefully getting better every year stayed there until that last year when I was driving down and I said, I think this is going to be it. And I decided mm -hmm. to, that this was going to be the last year because it did. It felt more like work than it did fun, games. Uh, you know, from one-on-one -on -one pass throw to blitz pickup to even nine-on-seven run drill, as tough as it was, it was fun for me because I knew we had three, four days of practice to get better in just one game. <laughs> so practice was a – and I tell you what, I hated – and I'm sure there's a lot of guys, but I hated to get beat in practice. I hated to make a mistake. Uh, so that's what drove me too. The second Super Bowl, uh, you go from Ken Anderson uh, as a quarterback in the first Super Bowl to Boomer Esiason, this flamboyant, outspoken, you know, uh, guy who now all of a sudden is a quarterback. I, I can't imagine that for an offensive lineman, and you were with a lot of that group for a number of years, and your yeah, buddy Max right. Montoya, among others, and Joe Walter, yeah. and right on down the road. You know, I, I can't imagine you could have two very different guys as far as personalities are concerned, but were they all that different in the huddle when a game started? A little bit. Still somewhat different. So they were different personality, similarities in probably two of the smartest quarterbacks that I've ever known. I mean, I look at these guys, quarterbacks that wear – you know, these big wristbands with all the formations and plays, I, I just kind of chuckle because not even in today's game, I don't think Kenny Anderson or Boomer would have to wear those to, to be able to remember the plays. So in that sense, they knew the offense, they knew the defense, they knew what everybody had. To, but even in the huddle, uh, Boomer was a little more vocal. Kenny was more, not as a different type of leader. Um, Kenny was a, a man of few words, and when he said something, you know, they were – not loud words, but they were words that really stung, you know? And I 
from what I hear, I think Paul Brown was a lot like that. You know, that uh, he didn't rant and rave and scream and yell, but when he said something, you listened and took it to heart and it, you didn't want to hear it again. And so I think that's in Boomer and both guys, you know, had your back. I mean, we might totally miss a guy and he would hit the quarterback and Boomer would say, hey, man, my bad. I'll, I'll get rid of the ball quicker next time. And, uh, you know, Kenny was the same way. They wouldn't throw the lineman under the bus. So, but yeah, personality wise, that's probably the big difference. But in the huddle, personality in the huddle, somewhat different the way they handle things. You know, the, the, the story, um, and I was working at the NBC affiliate in Cincinnati at the time, my first job out of college. And they had asked me to go down to, to do a bunch of grunt work leading up to the Super Bowl in Miami. Um, and then I fly back home uh, for a day or two. And then uh, the story hits about Stanley Wilson. Um, <clears throat> and for those who don't remember, Stanley Wilson was a, an extremely talented running back. And I always found him to be a very pleasant guy. I mean, everybody's got their demons and everybody's got their issues and everybody's got, you know, situations in their lives that, that they have to deal with. Each and every one of us is the same in that regard, some greater yep. than others. Um, but what do you recall about that, that day before the Super Bowl when all of that happened for you? I mean, here you're getting ready to play in the biggest game of your life. And now all of a sudden, your heart's being torn out because you're worried about a teammate. Or maybe you're mad at a teammate. Yeah, yeah. Mixed emotions. You know, it's, what are we, Super Bowl 57 coming up? And that was three, that's a couple years ago. And the memory is like it happened this past weekend. Um, so we were downtown Miami. The original hotel was downtown during the week. Saturday, we moved out to a smaller hotel away from the, the crowd, away from the families, closer to the stadium. And our routine was dinner. Right after dinner, we had our meetings. And that night, um, we had dinner. And Sam says, hey, there's a Super Bowl special on. After dinner, go back to your rooms, watch the special. We'll meet right after it's over. We're in our meeting rooms. And um, of course, you mentioned Stanley, probably one of the most charismatic guys I'd ever met. Uh, he had had a couple uh, falls during the season where he was suspended, but he'd come back, an amazing running back. And uh, so we go to dinner and we all go back to our rooms. And uh, when you're part of a team and you spend so much time together and you build that bond, words don't have spoken when you know there's something wrong. So we all gather back at the meeting room after the special and you could just feel the room that there's something wrong. No coaches in there, just all the players and everybody's kind of, you know, What's going on? I'm sure some guys knew, but weren't saying anything. And then as soon as Sam walked in, you knew that something was wrong. Uh, didn't know exactly what was wrong. But then he proceeded to tell us exactly what happened and where they found Stanley and what he was doing. And, and like I said, a variety of emotions. So the first one for me was, you know, here it is, the guy. His life is messed up again. I'm not thinking biggest game of the of, of your career yet. I'm thinking here's a guy that is just, man, let this demon, let this disease, let this drug get him again. Uh, so that's the first thought. And then all of a sudden the other emotions. I mean, you know, career, we need the guy. He's let us down, you know. But then it's, okay, we got to go out, next guy up, we got to, you know. So 
you're going, your mind is racing and going from, you know, uh, you know, just feeling sorry for the guy to angry to now we got to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We got to get over this, but it's tough because it's like a, a bomb just hit us the night before the game. I mean, the emotional, he's a, he's a brother, man. He's a, he's a family member. And this happens again. And, and it's just like, oh, you just feel terrible. And uh, so, yeah, it was, um, it was tough going. I mean, you know, that night before, then you got to meet and you got to finalize your game plan. And then you got all day the next day to sit around because the game's at night and think about the game and then think about, you know, what happened to Stanley? Where is he now? What's going to happen to Stanley? So uh, that was a big blow. You got a big blow in the game, too. Um, you know, all of a sudden they're down the stretch. I, I still think one of the coolest stories, and, and had the Bengals won that game, I think it would go down in Super Bowl lore because I was mentioned working at Channel 5, and, and I had flown back to Miami um, the day before the game when the Stanley Wilson stuff happens, and um, Stanford Jennings' wife had had a child in the hospital, and Sam had contacted us at Channel 5 and said, could you just get us a piece of video? of his wife holding their brand new little baby he's with a team down there and can you get that video down there so we got it down yeah. there. and then he runs back yeah. a kickoff uh, for return for it I, I just thought it was yeah. i mean that was an amazing moment but when when yeah. when montana goes down the field you guys have the lead out he trots most of the time you'll see the offense and the offensive linemen sitting down on the bench together uh going over something in case something comes up and you got to get out there one more time what were you doing exactly when that drive starts and then when it culminates with the touchdown to John Taylor at the end? You're right. You, you do have that. Uh, the, we did get on the bench right away. You make your adjustments. And, and we as offensive linemen always enjoyed getting on the op end of where our defense was. And we'd take a knee and just watch our defense. And that's what we did. And, you know, 92 yards, three minutes, we're thinking – the defense has given a lot of yards, but they haven't given up the points and felt pretty good about it. And so we, I was just on a knee watching and then watching and then watching. And then I guess the one play that really, really brought a, a lot of concern before, all, you know, was I think they had like a third and 16 and Montana hits Rice. He breaks the tackle and he gains like 17 or 18. So they get a, and man, we hold them on that. We take over and there's not, I mean, really. At, that's the one point where we could have you know, really closed the door. But when he got that first down, then I think I went from a knee to standing up and watching. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, come on, you're just rooting for the pass rushers now. I mean, you're, you know, you know that because you face pass rushers late in the game and you know that it's exhausting for them to play after play to rush the passer. And you're just rooting for the Jason Bucks and the David Grants and, you know, and those guys to – to get after it and get Montana and uh, and it doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, I think Jerry Rice, it might've had over 200 yards that game. And, you know, John Taylor makes one catch in the entire game and it's with 34 seconds yep. left and he catches a touchdown from Montana. I mean, the guy hadn't caught the ball game. So it goes from, okay, feeling pretty good. And then they break and they make that first down to, oh no, now we gotta stop them or else, you know, we're not gonna have enough time. So. Yeah, there, again, once again, you go from feeling good to not feeling so, Yeah. But it goes from a knee, helmet on the ground, to standing up. You put your helmet and you're kind of, you know, going through and just thinking, man, if I could only be a Bruce Smith and pass rush, I'd put me in there and, and I could get to him. <laughs> but uh, uh, you feel helpless. 
Before we get out of here, uh, many people who are watching today are well aware of the Anthony Munoz Foundation, which you and Didi started, I think it was 2002, if I'm not mistaken. So you guys have just celebrated 20 years as an anniversary uh, of this foundation and the millions of dollars uh, that you have helped children spiritually, physically, mentally, helping them to get a chance to, to go to college. You got married so young in college. Um, how, w- w- when you try to put things all in perspective at the end of the day, 11 Pro Bowls, Hall of Fame, 75th All-Anniversary, 100th Anniversary, all those things, is anything more important besides your faith and that foundation when all is said and done? Now, faith is number one. Like I tell people, I mean, that that's everything. My, my relationship with Jesus and uh you know, that to me is number one, family, and then the opportunity to give back. You know, I think about, you know, the foundation. I think about those, you know, think about mom. Think about, unk about teachers and coaches that poured into my life uh, and kept me pretty much thinking in the right direction. Uh, poured into my life when we didn't have any money to, to get me a baseball glove or a chance to play baseball even though we win a championship when I'm nine years old and all the parents are demanding my birth certificate. <laughs> but it was those coaches, that, those coaches that stood by me and encouraged me. Uh, and, you know, the scholarship I got to USC and the encouragement I got from my coaches and teachers in high school, uh, you know, believing that I could get it done on the next level. My coaches on USC and my coaches in the pro. So it's... You know, at first, when I first started the foundation, and it wasn't until eight years after I retired, and I understand the leverage and the relevance you have as a player, but as a husband, father, and a member of the Bengals, I didn't have enough time to be engaged into a, in the foundation. Because when I put my name on something, I want to be totally engaged. I want to be part of the impact. So I was. Uh, so when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about giving back. You know, move, uh, you know, paying it forward. But then, as I get older it becomes honoring those through the foundation that poured into my life, that made it possible for me to believe in myself and utilize the gifts that God gave me and develop those and to move through and be able to overcome adversity in college and injuries and, you know, the injuries I had in the pros and and just a lot of the, like you said earlier, none of us are exempt from craziness in our families. I mean, we all go through crazy things. None of us, you know, go unscathed, go, you know, without any problems. But uh, so that's what the, you know, my faith in the foundation has been for our families that they've supported me, they've encouraged me, and they've been part of it, uh, that we can help young men and women through our eight programs. Is when we started 20, we're in, moving into our, our 21st years, that, you know, to engage the tri-state area to impact youth mentally, physically, and spiritually with our eight programs, that we have built a team. And I, my name's on it, but I know it's all about team, just like it was with, you know, high school and in the pros. It's about the team and uh, having an impact, you know, with our, with our staff, with our volunteers, with our board members, or you know, the corporate partners, and that we have a humongous team that impacts young people. And to me, that's what it's all about: is being able to to say to a young person, "Hey, your mom OD'd, your dad's incarcerated, you're a 4.2 in high school, you have it tough. Let us assist you in college, and let us pay for some of your college." Or you know, our leadership program, bringing, you know, 1,500 students to a one-day event and having speakers that are going to give them some leadership nuggets that they can take back on their campus in the community to their families. They're going to help them in life. 
or the, our mentoring program that's teaching, you know, K through five, year, uh, K through five uh, elementary kids, make sure they're up on their reading, that they don't fall behind, uh, that they, you know, with their homework and then also building relationships with them or our overnight character camps, taking 150 young men away for three days, middle school young men, teaching them a little football, but having chapel and character traits, having team building uh, exercises and sharing with them, it doesn't matter what you look like. We might look different, but we got to work together. We got to respect each other. We've been doing that for 20, 30 years. So all our eight programs that we run are, are two scholarship funds and, you know, just being able to say, hey, and they thank us. And I always say, don't thank us. We're just here to recognize and help you out. You're the one that's doing all the work. We thank you for allowing us to, to help you out because you're busting your tail. And uh, so that's, you know, to me, when it's all said and done, that those are the things that I'm ex I get excited about. Well, Anthony, um, I can't thank you enough for your time. I, I kept you a little longer than I told you I oh. would. You, you've always just been a, a just a, a, a great friend, and I was privileged to work alongside of you and travel with you for uh, well over a year and doing football games together and, and just and seeing everything and knowing everything that you've done uh, here in our great city, in our great area. Uh, I know I speak for, for hundreds of thousands, if not millions around here in greater Cincinnati to you and Dee Dee and Michael and to Michelle and all your grandkids. We just say thank you and we're lucky to have you here with us. Thanks for your time today, my friend. Tom, always a pleasure. You know, it seems like it was yesterday, but it's been a few years since we worked together and I, I loved it. We had fun. Maybe we can do it again and talk about some of the stories we had on the ropes. <laughs> well, I, I still, I, I, you know, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I mean, the only time I've ever seen you get mad was when we were with Buddy Ryan, and Buddy was sitting there trying to tell us how he shut his defense shut down that no huddle nonsense, and you made the comment, jumped right up, and said, "Well, something to the effect of." The last time we played one of your defenses, I was on the bench in the third quarter. <laughs> Something like that. You remember his response? He goes, well, he goes, I took over the defense after that game. I was the defense. That's and if exactly. you remember, he had six hats in his hand to give to somebody else. And you guys, were, hey, you got them mad. Those hats were for us. <laughs> That's uh, exactly right. I think anytime we, we can do this and it's always great seeing you always great being with you i appreciate your friendship uh, this has been fantastic thank you anthony thank you for your time I all know. the best Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.